We're back in the book of James today, so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. You find that on page 1012 of the Pew Bible, but the words will also be up here on the screen. Let's begin reading this text together. You can follow along as I read out loud, beginning in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. In a parable, she calls a brawling bride. Karen Maines describes a suspenseful moment in a wedding ceremony. Down front stands the groom in a spotless tuxedo, handsome, smiling, full of anticipation, Shoes shined, every hair in place, anxiously awaiting the presence of his bride. All attendants are in place, looking joyful and attractive. The magical moment finally arrives as the pipe organ reaches full crescendo and the stately wedding march begins. Everyone rises and looks toward the door for their first glimpse of the bride. Suddenly, there is a horrified gasp. The wedding party is shocked. The groom stares in embarrassed disbelief. Instead of a lovely woman dressed in elegant white, smiling behind a lace veil, the bride is limping down the aisle. Her dress is soiled and torn. Her leg seems twisted. Ugly cuts and bruises cover her bare arms. Her nose is bleeding. One eye is purple and swollen, and her hair is disheveled. Everyone wonders, doesn't this handsome groom deserve better than this? Indeed he does. But his bride, the church, has been fighting again. 
How sad it is that the perfect groom, the Lord Jesus Christ, often endures the worldly behavior of his imperfect bride, the church. In our passage today, James addresses a common problem in the life of the church, conflict. Before he penned this section of the letter, James wrote in chapter 3 about the importance of taming the tongue and avoiding the wisdom of this world. When believers do not properly control their words and are influenced by worldly thinking patterns, they end up fighting and quarreling with each other. This is what had happened to this Jewish congregation to whom James wrote. James, you may remember, was the half-brother of Jesus Christ and the leader of the Jerusalem church. He most likely wrote this letter sometime around A.D. 44. It was probably the earliest written book of the New Testament. This means that within 10 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus, not long after he had officially founded the church, there already were significant quarrels and factions in the church that had to be addressed. The people of this Jewish congregation, even though they had been regenerated by God's grace and become followers of Jesus Christ, still had sinful hearts that influenced them to embrace worldly perspectives. They sound a lot like us, right? Because we have sinful hearts We often think, speak, and act in sinful ways. As someone has well said, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And unless and until we properly diagnose the root of this problem, we will never be able to implement the proper solution. The conflicts that we see in the church are a reflection of the sinful conflict that we see in each of our own hearts. Like a skilled physician, James identifies the fundamental root of our problem and then he offers to us a tangible, divinely inspired remedy. Today, we're going to see God's answer to the question, how can we be cured from conflict in our church? And the answer is going to come in four parts as you can see on your outlines. In verse 1, James identifies the source of conflict. In verses 2 through 3, he describes the symptoms of conflict. In verses 4 through 5, he points out the seriousness of conflict. Then in verses 6 through 10, he offers us the solution to our conflict. Let's begin our study together by looking at verse 1 and identifying the source of conflict. Look again at verse 1. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? When it comes to properly identifying the source of sin in our relationships with other people, It's so easy to blame external factors as the cause. 
We may blame the other person or persons involved. We may blame it on our circumstances. Perhaps even some in this Jewish congregation had concluded that their interpersonal conflicts were the result of pressure from the outside. After all, as this letter reveals, these early believers had been experiencing an onslaught of trials and persecution. James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Chapter 2, verse 6 indicates that some of their members were being falsely accused by the rich and taken to court. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, James indicts rich landlords for withholding wages from their workers. And in verse 7, he encourages these believers to be patient in the midst of their suffering. Clearly, these believers were facing tough times. And perhaps, under the pressure of these difficulties, they were tempted to turn on each other through quarrels and fights. But, surprisingly, James does not locate the source of their conflicts outside of the church, but inside of it. He says that their quarrels and fights came from their passions within them. The word translated passions here is the Greek word hedone, from which we get our English word hedonism. The same word is used again down in verse 3. Throughout the New Testament, this word is used in a negative way to describe a person's sinful desire or even their lustful pleasure. Lurking deep within the hearts of these believers were sinful desires for pleasure. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. The believers that James addressed were experiencing war within their congregation because they were also facing war within their own souls. Their problems were not fundamentally the result of some outside influence, but with a direct product of an inside contamination. Even though they were new people in Christ, having been born again by means of the word of truth, like we see in chapter 1, verse 18, they still had sinful hearts that were corrupted by sin. And the same is true of you and me. So often, we are tempted to think the problems of our lives are the result of something out there rather than the result of something in here. We have a tendency to blame our problems on someone or something else rather than own up to the real source of our problem ourselves. Like the old comic strip character Pogo, some of you remember him, used to say, We've met the enemy, and he is us. Dave Harvey, in his book, When Sinners Say I Do, recounts a story from the Civil War that illustrates this truth. The date was July 21st, 1861. The first major battle of the Civil War started before dawn. 
The roar of the artillery seemed to awaken everyone in Virginia as the Union and Confederate armies clashed among the farms by a stream called Bull Run. But a strange thing happened as the battle intensified. Hundreds of Washingtonians, senators, representatives, government workers and their families, all dressed in leisure apparel and carrying picnic baskets, raced to the hill near Manassas to watch the battle unfold. Armed with opera glasses to survey the fighting, they chatted amicably as men were slaughtered on the fields below. One northern sympathizer commented, That is splendid! Oh my! Is not that first rate? I guess we will be in Richmond this time tomorrow. Spirits were high. Toasts were raised. All in all, they thought it a superb way to spend a summer afternoon. Suddenly, a rebel counterattack led by a hard-charging cavalry swept over the Union flank, putting the army to flight. Even to untrained eyes, the implications were obvious. The serene picnic ground was about to become a battle zone. Mass confusion erupted as the spectators fled just moments before the Confederate wave washed over the hill. The entertainment was over. The battle was upon them. Whereas these curious spectators thought that the battle was far removed from them, they were alarmed to suddenly discover the reality that it actually was right in front of them. Rather than being far away, the battle was near. Rather than being in the distance, it was close. And the same is true for the battles that we face with each other. Our enemy is not out there, it's in here. It's not the other sinner standing next to us, but the sin dwelling inside of us that is the problem. Back in the early part of the 20th century, the London Times ran an editorial asking the question, what's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton, the famous Catholic writer, submitted the following answer. Dear editor, what's wrong with the world? I am. Think about how different our relationships with each other would be if we all embraced Chesterton's perspective. Now, I'm not saying, nor is James implying that our hearts are the sole cause of all of our interpersonal conflicts. In this very passage, two other external enemies are identified that contribute to church conflict. In verse 4, James mentions the world system, the ideologies and ways of thinking that characterize the world. And in verse 7, he mentions the devil, the evil one and his demonic forces. These two enemies are allies, so to speak, of our sinful flesh. There are even times, rare as it is, that it's possible to be completely innocent in some conflict and the object of someone else's sinful behavior and conduct. 
the Lord Jesus Christ himself, even though he was perfectly righteous and never sinned, still got into conflict with the religious leaders of his day. Yet, he remained faultless in these conflicts. It was the scribes and the Pharisees who were the guilty ones. But, if we are honest with ourselves, I think you would agree that more often than not, we contribute at least some amount of sin to any quarrel or fight. We are rarely, if ever, completely innocent. Recognizing this will go a long way to solving the interpersonal conflicts that we experience from time to time. You know, we as Americans are so easily prone to blame shifting. Will Rogers has well said, you can summarize American history into two great movements, the passing of the buffalo and the passing of the buck. You and I know all about this, don't we? But what James wants us to understand is that interpersonal conflicts and church fights are rarely one-sided. When we are in the midst of tense disagreement with another person, in humility, we should inspect ourselves first before examining the other person. After identifying the source of our conflicts in verse 1, James, secondly, describes the symptoms of conflict in verses 2 through 3. Look at what he says next. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Before we look at the specific outward manifestation of their sin, it's important to note the connection between these verses and what James says in verse 1. James shows us the proper relationship between the inward thought processes of our hearts and minds and the outward patterns of our words and actions. That is to say, he shows us the cause and effect relationship between what we think and how we act. James views the heart as the seat or the foundation of all of our words and actions. It's, it's the well from which springs up, springs up all that, that comes up in the bucket, what we say and, and what we do. What we allow to fill our hearts and minds will influence how we live. Jesus said it this way in Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23. That which proceeds out of a man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Now James builds on this in chapter 4 and says, For from within, out of the lust and coveting of our hearts, come murder, fighting, and quarreling. 
It's immediately disturbing that James identifies murder as one of the sins these believers were guilty of. Commentators throughout the years have questioned whether a sin of this magnitude was actually taking place in this congregation. While it's certainly possible, I think it's more likely that James was accusing these believers of murderous type behavior. In other words, they were guilty of the kind of behavior that Jesus indicts in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22, harboring hatred and murderous thoughts in their hearts toward one another. James further describes what their murderous behavior looked like at the end of verse 2. He calls it fighting and quarreling. Because these early Christians did not control the sinful lusts and pleasures in each of their own hearts, it resulted in unruly and harmful behavior in their community. Their internal cravings, the things that would bring them pleasure, became out-of-control urges that resulted in backbiting and bickering. On top of this, not only did their sinful passions lead them to sin against other people, it also led them to sin against God. Their sinful pursuits affected even their prayer lives. Did you notice that? James says at the end of verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You see, the real problem with these people was deep down in their hearts. They were idolaters. And the same thing can happen to you and me when we allow our sinful desires to control us and even determine the way that we approach God in prayer. When we want something so bad, that we are willing to sin to get it. And we have turned that desire into an idol. Ken Sandy, in his book, The Peacemaker, a biblical guide to resolving personal conflict, helpfully demonstrates the connection between the sinful, unmet desires of our hearts and the relationship conflicts that we experience. Listen to what he says. When we want something and feel that we will not be satisfied unless we get it, that desire starts to control us. Unmet desires have the potential of working themselves deeper and deeper in our hearts. There are many ways to justify a desire, he says. I work hard all week. Don't I deserve a little peace and quiet when I come home? I just want the children to get along and work hard in school. I spend hours managing the budget. A new computer could save me hours of work. God calls me to provide for our family. I deserve to have more appreciation and support for the long hours I put in. I just want the kind of intimacy God intended for marriage. She's my granddaughter. If I don't see her more, she'll think I don't love her. God has made me the pastor of this church, so people should respect me. He's my pastor, so he should visit me faithfully in the hospital. I fulfilled my part of the contract and deserve to be paid. Sandy writes, There is an element 
of validity in each of these statements. The trouble is that if these seemingly legitimate desires are not met, we can find ourselves in a vicious cycle. The more we want something, the more we think we need and deserve it. And the more we think we are entitled to something, the more convinced we are that we cannot be happy and secure without it. Even if the initial desire was not inherently wrong, it has grown so strong that it begins to control our thoughts and our behavior. In biblical terms, he says, that has become an idol, end quote. It's no wonder that James says what he does next. We've seen the source of conflict, the symptoms of conflict. Now let's look at the seriousness of conflict in verses 4 and 5. James says, You adulterous people! Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? James levels a serious rebuke to these believers in verse 4. Literally, he says, you adulteresses. This is a strong denunciation, especially for those who would have been steeped in Old Testament teaching. These Jewish believers would have felt the sting of this rebuke. This time, they're not called brothers or my beloved brothers, as is so common throughout this book. No, they're called adulteresses. Strong words. The Old Testament uses the covenant of marriage as a picture of God's relationship with his people. God was the groom. Israel was his bride. And just how a bride's unfaithfulness to her husband would make her guilty of physical adultery, so Israel's idolatry against the Lord made her guilty of spiritual adultery. In Hosea Chapter 9, verse 1, the Lord tells his people, you have played the harlot, forsaking your God. James picks up on this Old Testament teaching and now accuses these New Testament believers of the exact same thing. Just how Israel was unfaithful to God, this New Testament church, the bride of Christ, was being unfaithful to her groom, the Lord Jesus Christ. But how could James say they were guilty of something so serious? I mean, adultery? He explains in verse 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Essentially, he's saying there's no neutrality. Like Jesus said, we cannot serve both God and money. We cannot be friends with the world and friends with God at the same time. The term world here does not refer to the people of this world, but to the patterns of this world, the world system, the, the worldly way of doing things. When we allow the, the idols of our hearts, our unmet de desires for, for pleasure, 
to consume us and lead us to sin against each other, then we act just like the world. And we put ourselves at odds with the Lord. James adds in verse 5, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Rather than quoting a specific verse from the Old Testament here, he summarizes the overall message of the Old Testament in general terms and says that God has a jealous love for his people. He yearns or earnestly desires our love and unity. He jealously desires for us to live in submission to his spirit who dwells within us. The word spirit there in verse 4 should have a capital S. refers to the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. God, by his spirit, has holy desires for us to reign in and control our sinful desires so that we can experience harmony, unity, and peace in the body of Christ. He wants our desires our deepest pleasures to be united with his desires. When we live in harmony with each other, reigning in our passions for personal ambition, we show, we show that we belong to God and have been called to be separate from this world. But when we live in disunity and disharmony, following the sinful passions of our hearts, we take our stand with this world and are set against the Lord and his purposes for us. Listen, friends, we cannot have it both ways. We either choose to live in harmony with each other and the Lord, or we choose to live at odds with each other and with God. This is a serious serious matter with absolutely no neutrality. So where does that leave us? Where do we go from here? We've seen the source of conflict, the symptoms of conflict, and the seriousness of conflict. Now let's look finally at the solution to conflict. Notice again verses 6 through 10. But God gives more grace. Therefore it says, and here he quotes from Proverbs 3, verse 34, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Having exposed the root of our sinful problem, James now administers the divinely determined remedy. If I was to summarize the entire message of these verses in a word, it would be humility. The term humble brackets this section. It's found in verse 6, you can see it again in verse 10. 
Humility is the key to solving church conflict. And James shows us how to attain humility in the series of commands that are found in between verse 6 and verse 10. Three things. First, humility starts with our reliance upon God. It starts with our reliance upon God. Paul Tripp, in a book I highly, highly recommend, entitled Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, he says this. The turnaround of this passage is very interesting. You would think that James's first counsel would be to go to the people we've sinned against and confess it. But his turnaround is first vertical with respect to God and then horizontal with respect to people. James's first call is a direct plea to deal with the idolatry of our hearts. If human conflict is rooted in spiritual adultery, change must begin by bowing before God in humble repentance for the idols that have replaced him in our hearts, end quote. Notice, if you would, that everything James commands in these verses is rooted and grounded in God's grace. What good news for us. He tells us in verse 6 that God gives us more or greater grace. What we lack in and of ourselves, he provides through the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. God's grace brought us to faith in his son in the first place, and his grace continues to sustain our lives throughout our walk with Christ. Just as he gave us grace in the past, he also gives us more grace in the present. And because of his grace, we are enabled and empowered to do what he commands. This is why St. Augustine, the church father, said, God gives what he demands. God gives what he demands. As we humbly rely upon his enabling grace, James calls us to submit to God in verse 7 and draw near to God in verse 8. The word submit is a military term, and it means to, to come underneath the authority of another. It really has the idea of obedience. When we are submissive to God, we place ourselves under his greater authority and rule. We recognize that we should no longer follow our sinful hearts, but follow after the desires of his heart. Second, humility leads to our resistance of Satan. Our resistance of Satan. Verse 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. As we move toward God, we move away from the devil. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6-9 through says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Instead of fighting against each other and resisting God's spirit, we should fight against the devil and his forces. When we 
humbly admit our own propensity to sin, acknowledge our own need for God's grace, and submit to God's authority, then we will be able to stand against Satan. And as we do this, we have this remarkable promise. Look at it. He will flee. Not he might flee, not he may flee, but he will flee. Finally, humility ends with our repentance of sin. Our repentance of sin. Bringing his teaching full circle, James addresses both the external sin in our lives and the internal sin in our hearts. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded We will never really get to the root of interpersonal conflict until we address both our outward actions and our inward attitudes. Focusing on the external problem only is like putting a band-aid on a fatal hemorrhage and calling it good. James wants us to eliminate the fatal root of our conflicts by targeting the heart issues that lie deep, deep inside of us. This is why he says in verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He's not calling for us to be fake here and to muster up some feelings that we don't have. Nor is he contradicting Paul's words that we should rejoice in the Lord always. I think that What he's getting at is that if we, by God's grace, are to advance in holiness, it must start with the internal dispositions of our hearts. We cannot have a flippant attitude about our sin or the serious nature of conflict that results from sin. Repentance must be pursued in a sober manner. So then, humility as the solution to church conflict entails relying upon the Lord, resisting the devil, and repenting of sin. When we do these things, then we will experience reconciliation with each other. We've examined the source of conflict, the symptoms of conflict, the seriousness of conflict, and the solution the conflict. As we close today, I'd like to tell you about the Tate family. There is Dick Tate, who wants to run everything, while Uncle Rotate tries to change everything. Their sister Agitate stirs up plenty of trouble with help from her husband, Irritate. Whenever new projects are suggested, Hesitate and his wife, Vegetate, want to wait until next year. Then there's Cousin Duplicate, who resists any kind of change. Devastate provides the voice of doom, while Potentate wants to be a big shot. This family sounds a lot like my family. I think if you were honest, you would say it sounds a little bit like your family too. Actually, this side of heaven, it sounds a lot like the family of God, doesn't it? 
It's so easy. It's so easy to look at the church and see all of the irritating people in it. It's so easy to blame our problems on the difficult people. But James 4 teaches us that before we point our fingers at someone else as the cause of all of our problems, we should humbly point our finger at ourselves first. It's not the enemy outside that is the problem. It's the enemy within. And when we, by God's grace, humbly inspect ourselves before we suspect others, we will see conflict gradually dissipate from our congregation. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray that your spirit be present in this congregation. That we would each suspect ourselves first before accusing other people of faults. I pray that we would repent of our own sin and we would grow in humility as a result of your grace in our lives. I pray that the words of your dear son Jesus would be true of us, that we would experience true unity. Jesus spends so much time answering our requests. It would be great if for once we could answer one of his requests. May we be unified. Pray for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.